0: Okay, we're live in Hiroshima, broadcasting with Professor Robert Jacobs. Thanks so much for talking with us, Beau.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure to be here.
0: Could you just give us an introduction about what you do?
1: Sure. Uh, I'm a historian of science and technology, and I work on the history of nuclear technology and radiation. Uh, I'm a professor at the Hiroshima Peace Institute and the graduate school of peace studies at Hiroshima City University.
0: And what is, you usually do a lot of interviews with people around the world, uh, news networks. Um, Tell us, what is the significance of Hiroshima's legacy for the peace movement or other industries around the world?
1: There's, you know, there's a a spectrum of legacy. Um, Obviously, there's the legacy for people here in town of uh, the loss, the destruction that happened, the loss of family members. Um, the destruction of community. This is a really obviously an essential part and a big part of how commemoration culture is here in Hiroshima on August 6. Um, politically, it's uh, in some ways it's very important because it's a the entire world faced the possibility of destruction from nuclear weapons and still does. And so, remembering what happened here on August 6 and the nuclear attack in Nagasaki on August 9th, is a way to not lose sight of the risks and the dangers that we face, and the uh, necessity that we have to to grapple with abolishing nuclear weapons. Certainly, limiting their immediate usability. Right now, there are over 2,000 weapons that could be launched in five minutes. That's a danger for everyone in the world, no matter where you live. Um, and also, my own work is on what uh, is referred to as global hibaksha, which is all of the people who have been exposed to radiation after the attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which is millions of people exposed through uranium mining, through nuclear weapon testing, through the production of nuclear weapons and uh, nuclear fuel for nuclear power plants, the operation of nuclear power plants and the storage of waste, and accidents like what happened in Fukushima. So this is a, for, for example, one of the ways that it's really relevant, there was a court decision here in Hiroshima Uh, just less than a month ago, uh, acknowledging that a significant group of people were exposed to black rain. Um, This is fallout. This is the mushroom cloud that went up in Hiroshima. The mushroom cloud carried a whole lot of material up in it, and that mushroom cloud then drifts. And as it drifts, radioactive fallout comes down. And here in Hiroshima, those areas are called areas of black rain. Uh, Rain brings it down in heavier amounts. And the rain was black because of the fire in Hiroshima. There was a lot of soot. So these are people who were not close enough to the bomb to have been exposed to radiation from the explosion of the bomb. But they were where fallout came down. Um, people worried at the beginning of the Cold War that there would be a nuclear war with nuclear weapons. And a lot of people would be exposed to radiation. Well, what really did happen was there were 2,000 weapons tested and a lot of people were exposed to fallout. Fallout from clouds. So, the fact that here in Hiroshima, we have legally acknowledged that these people suffered health consequences from being exposed to fallout, that's the kind of precedent that needs to be carried around the world. Because there are people in test site communities like the Marshall Islands, Kazakhstan, Australia, um, French Polynesia, who don't have their health claims seen as legitimate because their exposure was to fallout rather than to the weapon itself. Uh, and I would say that that puts a specific burden here in Japan on the Japanese government, because a lot of people exposed to radiation in Fukushima are exposed to particles, not exposed to high levels of radiation. So we've now determined legally in Japan that that does cause health consequences. We need to then take that knowledge and that decision and apply it to other people who are suffering. And that's one of the ways in which what happened here in Hiroshima and the way we understand what happened in Hiroshima has applicability every day here in Japan and in many places around the world.
0: And could you just talk a little bit about your experience when you come to this ceremony every year or be a part of this commemoration?
1: Yeah, I, uh, for me, this is my 15th year coming down here on August 6th. And um, it's always a very, very powerful experience. I tend to not go to the ceremony, which is a fairly controlled and organized event because of the the way of reflecting on people who were lost and having family members speak and um, and maintaining the community memory. Uh, I tend to go by the A-bomb dome, which is actually outside of the park and where there's a lot of protesters, often anti-nuclear protesters, And there's also Buddhist monks chanting. And I always sit near the chanting Buddhist monks because it helps me to feel calm and grounded during the distress of remembering what happened here. And at that spot at 815, which is the time that the weapon was detonated, there's a diet where people lay down on the ground as though they were dead. And for me, uh, I began to go to anti-nuclear protests in the 1970s when I was a teenager. And we would have die-ins and so when I saw this being done here it connected me to my earlier anti-nuclear activism and it made me feel a connection with the commemoration here in Hiroshima.
0: And we're standing in front of the Eibam Dome ruins right now and you've actually been inside the, this area. Can you tell us about it?
1: Yeah, I was actually really fortunate to be able to go all the way around inside there a colleague of mine that uh, from Australia was filming an immersive uh, 3D full uh, video scape. So you can actually, if you, can, uh, if you have a virtual reality headset, you can be inside the dome and looking around at the ground and looking up. And so they were filming that. And as, as a helper for him, I was able to wander around completely inside of there, which is amazing because this is a place that all of us in Hiroshima look at. All the time, and it's and we never see people in there. So to be walking around in there was was kind of amazing and, and a little disoriented. And uh, and uh, one of the things that was the strangest to me was standing directly underneath the dome. I always assumed from looking from the outside that the dome is a circle, but it's actually an oval, uh, which you could see when you're standing underneath it and you look up that it's not round. It's actually an oval. Um, but also standing inside and looking down, you could see things like uh, ceramic, uh, ceramic fixtures from the the old knob and tube wirings. So you could, I mean, I was amazed that there was still a lot of actual things that clearly had been brought to the ground in the destruction that happened on August sixth that were just still sitting there.
0: And we've done a previous interview at the a-bombed uh, army depot, yes. clothing warehouse. Um, do you think there is a value in keeping the original structures like the a Dome or like those warehouses?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, a city like Hiroshima is mostly a city of new construction because uh, the center of the city was completely uh, destroyed by the nuclear attack. And so the things that survived that are testimony to a couple things. They're testimony to the fact that this was a community. Uh, and that this happened to people and where people lived. And the buildings that survive stand as witnesses to what happened and reminders of what happened. And it's a way to take something that's abstract. I mean, here with the dome, it's not abstract, right? We can go August 6th, This, this building lived through August 6th. Most of the buildings around here are all built after August 6th. And so there's a way in which it becomes a memory uh, rather than a lived experience, rather than a tactile thing. So there's something about the actual things that appear are here on that day and being with them that give you a different orientation, a different relationship to that history than just knowing the story or hearing the story.
0: And you have traveled around the world talking about peace and radiation and the effects on our local people from nuclear weapons or nuclear power. Um, how How is it being based in Hiroshima? Does that help your research around the world?
1: It, it definitely does. Uh, and and in, in a couple of odd ways. I mean, on the one hand, it's sort of like a passport because you can go to any community and you tell them that you're based in Hiroshima. And every everybody in these remote communities knows this history. And they know that their history is linked to the history. So that gives me an easy legitimacy immediately when I'm talking to people who are suspicious of outsiders coming in to find out about what happened in their community. Um, so and it's also it's it's I always think of it as as the hub of of nuclear peace-oriented movements. Typically on August 6th, here in Hiroshima, there will be people from the Marshall Islands, there will be people from Kazakhstan, people come from those places here partly because their history is not remembered. And there's so much memory culture here that by coming here, they hope that their histories get more notice, get more attention. Um, And so Hiroshima functions really as the center of a circle that radiates, to use the right word, into all directions all around the world and the communities all around the world. Um, And so also all kinds of peace activists and all kinds of nuclear scholars and activists all come through this town so it's really like being in the center uh I've met so many people just by virtue of being based here it's really uh and and now I've been here so long that it's just home I love this town.
0: it's awesome thank you so much Bob
1: thank you